Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Tonight on The Readout. The work is accomplished. I mean, we've been working for two and a half years. We're ready to go. With Georgia's Fonnie Willis apparently, potentially, maybe, ready to hand Trump a potential fourth indictment, Carlos de Oliveira, the Mar-a-Lago manager accused of scheming with Trump to cover up his purloined classified documents, makes his first appearance in court. Also tonight, the incredible shrinking campaign. Polls show Ron DeSantis trailing Trump by a mile with a former supporter saying Ron just doesn't understand the game and doesn't connect with voters. Plus, the arrogance of Samuel Alito saying Congress has no business imposing ethics rules on the Supreme Court, you know, to stop him and his sidekick Clarence Thomas from accepting fancy gifts from their wealthy benefactors. And good evening, everyone. I am back from a long weekend in the glorious British Virgin Islands. And you know how like a summer vacation, long or short, has this like abrupt ending where reality kicks back in? Well, in this case, reality has a familiar vibe. It is called the waiting game. And that is where we begin the readout tonight. For Donald Trump, that means waiting to see whether Fulton County, Georgia, District Attorney Fonnie Willis and or Special Counsel Jack Smith will run up his tally of indictments to three or even four before the end of the summer, with both prosecutors focusing on his efforts to overturn his failed 2020 reelection bid. This morning, a Superior Court judge in Georgia rejected Trump's latest efforts to stop Willis's investigation. That after Willis said this over the weekend. I've made a commitment to the American people, but most importantly, the citizens of Fulton County, that um, we were going to be making some big uh, decisions regarding the election investigation and that I would do that before September the 1st of 2023. And I'm going to hold true that commitment. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. As for the special counsel, all eyes will be on a D.C. grand jury that as early as tomorrow could share whether Trump has been indicted on federal charges for that same offense, trying to overturn his 2020 election loss. But for other people not named Trump, like his co-defendants in the classified documents case, the only waiting game is about waiting to find a local attorney willing to take on their case. Because the timing between allegedly lying to the FBI and indictment felt quick, fast, in a hurry. You saw that with Trump's longtime valet, Walt Nada, who took more than three weeks to find a local lawyer following his first appearance alongside Trump last month. And that now appears to be the case with the newest defendant, Carlos de Oliveira, who still works, still, as a property manager at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort. His charges include not only helping to move the classified documents out of a storage room, but also his alleged involvement in a scheme to destroy security camera footage, showing those movements and then lying to authorities about it. De Oliveira made his first appearance in court today, but because he was without a local attorney, his arraignment was rescheduled to August 10th. As for Trump, I honestly can't tell whether he was trolling himself or being trolled. But listen to the lyrics of the song that was playing as he took the stage in Des Moines, Iowa on Friday. 
just a coincidence. Who knows? But one thing we do know is that his campaign has been in overdrive, fundraising off of all these investigations. And there's a good reason for that. Trump is using the money to pay for his legal defense. The Washington Post reports that Trump's Save America Super PAC has spent more than $40 million on legal costs in the first half of this year. Alone, this year alone, just this year, to defend Trump, his advisors, and others. The Post adds that that total is more than any other expense the PAC has incurred during Trump's 2024 campaign. And according to federal filings from earlier this month, more than Trump's campaign raised in the second quarter of 2023. Joining me now is attorney Lisa Rubin and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor. Both are MSNBC legal analysts. Lisa, I do have to ask you that because this, this is... You know, the super PAC is supposed to be for his campaign, uh, but the fact that he's diverting money and essentially having his, you know, supporters who aren't rich people pay for his legal defense, is to, it seems odd to me. Is it legal? That's questionable, Joy. I mean, one of the questions that I think the January 6th investigation has been looking into, and by that I mean Jack Smith's investigation, is whether or not there's fraud involved when you're raising money and telling people that money is for your election and for your political life, and then diverting those funds, as you just said, to the legal defense of yourself and others. We know that one of the things that Jack Smith's folks have looked at is whether that constitutes the very ordinary crime of federal wire fraud, when you're basically using the wires here, email fundraising, text fundraising, to convince people to give you money, even in small increments, for electoral purposes, and yet then using them for something wholly other than your electoral future. Yeah, it is. It is odd. Uh, Glenn, let's go to um, Carlos de Oliveira, um, yet another one of these low level guys. He works uh, at Mar-a-Lago. And I, let, let's talk about sort of his his journey. Uh, he works for Trump like Waltine Nada. Here's what The Washington Post had to say about him as he went from failed witness to defendant. Uh, the prosecutor's dissatisfaction came to a head in mid-April when de Oliveira was given a proffer session, an interview in which a prosecutor and defense attorney meet with a person to decide if they have valuable, valuable information to offer an investigation, the kind that could lead to a plea deal. After the session, people familiar with the matter said prosecutors told de Oliveira's lawyer they believed he was not being truthful and he should expect to be charged. Um... What do you make of that? Do you, is this the way this normally goes, that somebody like de Oliveira, who was not charged in the first set of indictments where Walty, Nada and Trump were charged, he then gets charged in the superseding indictment? Does that say to you that he was somebody, uh, Glenn, that they maybe thought they could flip and then they couldn't and they decided to charge him? Yes, Joey. And there are typically two breaking points for somebody who's the target of a grand jury investigation. Importantly, when that target has information against bigger criminal fish. One breaking point is typically before the indictment comes. And I suspect Jack Smith's team worked long and hard on de Oliveira and said, listen, you can either cooperate, you can agree to testify truthfully against Donald Trump and anybody else about whom you may have incriminating information, or you will be indicted. You know, at that stage, Joy, when you're dealing with people that you would like to bring on board as cooperating witnesses, it's still kind of theoretical, right? It's not concrete because they haven't seen their name as a, an indicted defendant, as we say on the wrong side of the V, United States of America versus uh, uh, Carlos de Oliveira. But often, you know, try as I might as a former federal prosecutor, I couldn't always convince people like de Oliveira to come on board to try to make right what he did so wrong previously. So I made good on my promise and I would indict that person. 
you know, often it then becomes very real, very concrete. Seeing your name on that indictment has a way of focusing one's attention and one's mind and one's priority. So I suspect they are, again, going to be working to see if uh, De Oliveira now wants to cut his losses. He mm. will not get as generous a plea offer uh, from the prosecutors as, as he would have gotten pre-indictment. But now the real battleground is, will he get conflict-free counsel who will have his best interests at heart rather than Donald Trump's best interests at heart. Well, see, that's the thing, because it, it all does kind of feel, Lisa, like we're dealing with a mobster in Donald Trump, right? Because a lot of this feels very mafioso-like, because you've got people who are representing multiple people, some of whom could be witnesses, some of whom could be or are being indicted. That is the case for a couple of these lawyers. But I just want to go through really quickly the timeline with De Oliveira to stay with him for just a second, because this also feels very mobbish, right? Like, so, so you've got on June 22nd, just for the timeline for our audience here, Trump um, gets warned that a subpoena for the security cameras is coming from the DOJ. So that's coming June 22nd. June 23rd, Trump calls De Oliveira. So this guy who's just like the, you know, manager at Mar-a-Lago gets a phone call from the former president. They're on the phone for 24 minutes. The next day, June 24th, the, del- the DOJ delivers a formal subpoena for the tapes. Like, we want the tapes. Nada then tells, tells, Nada is then told that Trump wants to speak with him. That's Walty Nada. Then Nada on June 25th returns to Mar-a-Lago, meets up with De Oliveira, and they search out locations of the surveillance cameras. On June 27th, De Oliveira goes and speaks with a guy named Yusil Tavares, who we now know is Trump employee four in the superseding indictment about deleting the video servers. And let me just read from the indictment just a little bit, Lisa. This is De Oliveira told Trump employee four, who we now know is Yusil Tavares, that he want that Trump, the boss, wanted the server deleted. Trump employee four responded that he would not know how to do that and that he did not believe that he would have the rights to do that. Trump employee four told De Oliveira that De Oliveira would have to reach out to another employee who was a supervisor of security for Trump's business operation, business organization. De Oliveira then insisted to Trump employee four that the boss wanted the server deleted and asked, what are we going to do? We now know, uh, Lisa, that this Trump employee for Yusil Tavares, who oversaw the security cameras, he got a target letter. He previously got a target letter in the declassified documents probe. Does that tell you that essentially all of these low level employees, one by one by one, are being interviewed by the FBI and they have a choice? As Glenn just said, you can be a witness for the government or you're about to get indicted. You know, we don't have formal proof that Yusil Taveras, who is employee number four, is officially a signed up cooperator or that he made a deal with the prosecutors. But, Joy, it increasingly looks like that's what happened. And we know Yusil Taveras went in, spoke to the grand jury in May. Sometime after that, he got the target letter. Then Trump and Nauda were indicted. And for him, that seems like that was the pivot point. It was thereafter that Yusil Tavares, according to public reporting, decided that he had, quote, more information that he wanted to give to investigators. We also know from public reporting that it was at that point that it was decided that he needed some form of independent counsel. He does have that counsel, or at least had that counsel when he spoke to investigators. And we know from public reporting that that counsel is not being paid for by Save America, which is the Trump leadership pack that has spent 
$40.2 million in the last six months on Trump and others' legal expenses. So my expectation is seeing Trump and Nauda's name on the other side of the Vucil Tavares, that was enough, plus the target letter, to get him to at least come to the table and tell more of his truth to investigators. And whether or not he's formally a cooperating witness with the government remains to be seen, and I'm looking forward to finding out. Well, here, and this is where it gets juicy, Glenn. Okay, so, so, so right. So just to, to the point that Lisa just made, we know that there's a guy named John Irving who is representing Carlos de Oliveira. There's a guy named Stanley Woodward, who you guys have probably heard his name said a lot on MSNBC because he's representing Walt Nada and also, ding, 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 Yusil Tavares. So there's all of these sort of people who are representing you know, multiple people. But now we got one more filing today, Glenn. Special counsel turned over the third production of Discovery to Trump and Nada, including all of the witness interviews and grand jury transcripts, as well as any witness deals the government has disclosed and will continue to disclose any payments, promises of immunity, leniency, preferential treatment, or other inducements made to prospective government witnesses within the scope of Giglio versus the United States, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Glenn, Trump is now going to know who got offered deals. And then what, he, what could he do with that? Well, first of all, what could Trump do with it? He could let, let me use the term mob lawyer. I'm not accusing anybody of being a mob lawyer. But when, when we hear the term mob lawyer, what does that conjure up? The mob boss gets a lawyer or lawyer for all of his, you know, underlings, his capos, his futsal, his wise guys, his consigliere, because he wants to keep them all close. He wants to keep them into the fold. And here is the thing. The Sixth Amendment right to counsel in the Constitution provides that not only does everybody have a right to counsel, you have a right to zealous counsel, effective counsel, and most importantly, for our purposes here, conflict-free counsel. So it's going to be so important for the prosecutors to do whatever they can. And there are some things that they can do. They can ask a judge to appoint conflict-free counsel for purposes of broaching possible cooperation if, you know, the, the lawyer happens to be somebody who is doing the boss's bidding rather than zealously representing the interests of the client. But this has to drive Donald Trump nuts. Every time he gets a discovery dump like this, he is seeing in black and white that more people who were telling him at Mar-a-Lago, you the man, you the man, it's a witch hunt, you did nothing wrong. Now he sees what they are really saying, and it's got to drive him nuts. But the sense is, you know, he knows that indictments are coming. And, and just for the audience, before we, before we go, we are out of time. But just keep in mind, Walty Nauta and Carlos de Oliveira still work there. And so they are supposed to not talk about the case with each other or with Trump. And they still work for him. You want to talk about a three ring circus and a drama and a mob story all in one. It's all of those things. Lisa Rubin, Glenn Kirshner. Thank you very much. And be sure to check out the latest episode of the prosecution of, Do of the prosecuting Donald Trump podcast featuring Judge Michael Ludig, who advised Mike Pence on what he could and could not do on January 6th. Up next on the readout, DeSantis donors are slowly realizing, slowly, it's not the campaign, it's the candidate. <laughs> and it's already too late to ask for their money back. Wah, wah. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. 
The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The state of Florida is in hot water right now. And no, I am not talking about the seawater temperature topping 100 degrees. I'm talking about how right now the state is grappling with a big bag full of crises. And their governor, Ron DeSantis, is too busy running for president to care. Just weeks before the start of the school year, state colleges are facing a, quote, ridiculously high number of faculty openings, thanks to DeSantis's anti-DEI, anti-woke laws, which are driving out educators. While at the same time, his immigration law is driving away large numbers of migrant workers in the state's construction and agricultural sectors. On top of that, Florida is also now facing a problem of seemingly biblical proportions, a spike in cases of leprosy. Yes, I did say leprosy, saints, a situation not made any easier by the fact that two of the top public health positions in DeSantis's administration responsible for tracking and preventing the spread of communicable diseases are currently empty. And as the state he ostensibly runs is struggling, DeSantis is trying to sell voters in Iowa and New Hampshire on making America Florida, except that's not going so well for him either. And, and not just because America does not want, you know, probably like large amounts of leprosy. After rebooting his campaign and laying off more than a third of his staff, including one guy who amplified Nazi imagery, new reporting suggests the reboot might need a reboot. <laughs> Rolling Stone is reporting that big DeSantis donors have been furious that the campaign is taking its cues from Internet culture wars over niche issues. While some seem to think the problem isn't the campaign, but rather the candidate himself, you think? One top Republican donor who's been backing DeSantis says, quote, a top to bottom makeover and real accountability may be the only thing that saves DeSantis in the primary. But even then, you still have the governor at the top. And it's getting harder and harder by the day to see not just his people as the problem. Yeah, but really him, him, him is the problem. Joining me now is Fernanda Mondi, Democratic pollster and strategist, and Christina Greer, associate professor of political science at Fordham University and host of the podcast, The Blackest Questions. Fernand, it falls to you to please try to get me to explain. Uh, DeSantis or DeSantis or however he pronounces his name right now, when leprosy comes to your state, God might be trying to tell you something. That's just how I feel. How do you feel? <laughs> well, you know, God or, or some a higher power joy because Florida right now is on fire, literally, literally in terms of the heat wave that we're going through here now. And also politically uh, with this crisis after crisis that really DeSantis is lack of leadership. We've had five insurance companies just pick up and say, we can't be in business in Florida anymore. Not to mention the teacher shortage, the nursing shortage. I mean, it's, it's a bad situation. And a lot of it has to do, I think with Ronnie's big adventure his presidential campaign has really imploded on start, and he's going to have a easier time, I think, finding the basement in the Alamo before he gets to that Republican nomination, given the way uh, this thing is unfolding. But right now, Joe, he's coming to a position to, to a point where he's going to have to make a choice. This morning, the New York Times has him 37 points 
behind Donald Trump. And he's doing irreparable harm to his political brand, not just nationally, but in Florida. And that bully-like total fascist control he had over the Republican Party, that's starting to weaken. You're having now open whispers, signs of defiance that you didn't see before. And it's because of the ultra weakness that you've seen in this candidacy. So for Ron DeSantis, this could not have been more of a worst start to this effort. And it's happening at the worst time when Florida actually needs a governor and not an autocrat running around the country trying to be president. Yeah, to stay with you just for a minute, Fernand, I mean, I wonder, are there some signs that members of the state Senate and state House feel duped and feel like they were made to pass some really incredibly extreme laws that are driving conventions out of the state, driving teachers out of the state. I know there's a huge teacher shortage. Colleges are not able to get people to accept admissions, I mean, accept offers of jobs. Like, it's literally turning the state into a pariah. I mean, the NAACP said don't come here, or at least consider don't coming here. Are there any Republican legislatures saying, wait a minute, you got us to pass a six-week abortion ban, and you have no shot at being president? Well, remember, all of this was done prior to the ultimate collapse of his candidacy for president that we've seen now. And it has no signs of a reset. There's no signs of this turning around. But yes, just two major industries, the agricultural industry here in Florida, the construction industry, decimated by the fact that a lot of workers that otherwise would have come here no longer want to risk coming to Florida. So we're seeing this in real time take place. And a lot of these legislators are saying, hey, what have you done for us? Everything in this case, DeSantis has touched, has died in Florida. Uh, you know, and Christina, the thing is, he clearly DeSantis made a calculation that anti-blackness and anti-LGBTQ fury alone would get him past Trump. But if you read that New York Times piece that's around their Siena poll, the people who are the most angry at black folks and gay folks and trans people, they still like Trump better. They're like, yeah, 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 he's fine. and He's doing all that wild stuff. But I still prefer Trump. So he's not gotten anywhere. Even 22 percent who say Trump committed felonies or probably committed crimes say they still want him to be president, not DeSantis. So it didn't even work. Mm-hmm. Well, we also know that the Trump supporter is inconsistent, just like Donald Trump. I mean, you know, so Donald Trump will say anti-black and anti-LGBTQ stuff and anti-Semitic things and then turn around and say, well, you know, my, my grandkids are Jewish and look at my black friend and, oh, gays aren't that bad, right? I mean, you know, he's so inconsistent and so are his supporters. The difference is Rob DeSantis is a true believer. And so he doubles down and triples down on these things. But a lot of the people who like him or thought they liked him, realize that there's something off about his ideological drive. And it's making, it's giving them a touch of pause. And now it's giving his donors a lot more pause. And so we're going to see sort of, as you said, the retool to the retool to the retool. You can only retool but so many times before you seem inauthentic and inconsistent. And that's something that Ron DeSantis always doubled down. He said, listen, I don't like the blacks, right? And here's the legislation, the policy that I'm going to push forward to it. If he tries to change or or soften up in any capacity now, it's not going to seem authentic. And his and his voters are 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 going to move even farther away from him. And it's just weird. Can I can I just play a clip? Do we have a clip here? This clip. Let me play it. This is DeSantis. This is. Let's just play him. <laughs> He's weird. This is this is cut for. Oh, what is that? An icy? Yeah, that's probably a lot of sugar, huh? As always. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're uh, I'm here. I don't know the other one. I'm just kidding. I'm not pressed. Okay. All right. It's good. It's good. All right. We'll say hi to everybody. He's just weird. I mean, Chris, I mean, you know, no offense. I I like weird generally, but Chris, 
Christina, your, your thoughts. He's just weird. Yeah, there's, but there's no joy in the campaigning. And we know that in a place like Iowa, it's incredibly important for you to make real connections with people because it's not a vote. It's a caucus. And you need right. people to feel as though they should go into that room and literally fight for you and your candidacy. This is something where it's just Ron DeSantis doesn't seem as though he likes people. Yeah. And so <laughs> why would you be inspired to vote for someone or to continue to give money to someone who doesn't even seem as though he likes you, let alone wants to fight for you? Fernand, he has he has four kids. If they ask for ice cream, does he say, nah, nah, you still woke, nah. Like, what, what is that? What does he do? How did he get this far in politics, Fernand? It make it make sense. Joy, you know, Florida doing Florida things. Forget, the, you know, the, the old question is, is that the kind of guy you want to have a beer with? That's the kind of guy you need 10 beers just to put up <laughs> with him. Get away from me. He, he's got no charm, no charisma. And it's also part of the problem he has nationally. That lack of warmth and that lack of personal connection means he has yeah. no relationship. That's why even people on his campaign, yeah. and I guess I'm telling a little state secret here, I know Florida Republican legislators who are on his campaign committee that hate him like poison privately, <laughs> can't wait to go down. And you saw a little bit of that with that interaction with that little girl in Iowa. Uh, well, we listen, we know that there, uh, a celebrity died today. And I have to ask you, Fernand, why are you dressed like that? <laughs> is there, is there a reason? <laughs> I know you are, but what am I? Come on, Joy. I know you're one of mine. Gen X kid here. We lost a real one today. Uh, someone who gave a lot mm -hmm. of joy to me and my family and my kids. The great Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman. So giving a little love to Pee Wee on the day he left us forever and became a legend for all mm -hmm. time. I know you are, but what am I? I love it. I love it. Had to get that in there. Fernanda Mondi and Christina Greer. Thank you both very much. All right, still ahead. It turns out that Alabama Republicans are ignoring a Supreme Court ruling on voting rights. But that's just part of a larger strategy, apparently, aimed at disenfranchising even more Americans. We will explain when I get back. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on tvs streaming game console consoling smart thermostat set for cuddle time doorbell camera oh my package is here fast reliable able to power tons of devices inside your home at once all systems go you are clear for takeoff this is xfinity internet wi-fi built to wow and watch the short film the aviators now playing at xfinity.com restrictions apply actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Justice Samuel Alito is the Supreme Court's most inflammatory justice to date. Last week, he spoke with the Wall Street Journal about the legitimacy of the court. And here is what he said with zero sense of irony. Quote, if we're viewed as illegitimate, then disregard of our decisions becomes more acceptable and more popular. So you can have a revival of the massive resistance that occurred in the South after Brown. Well, Justice Alito. That ship has sailed because Alabama Republicans openly ignored the Supreme Court's directive to redraw its congressional districts to include two majority black districts or something quite close to it. It was a modern day throwback to the South's defiance of school desegregation. 
The decision to disregard the court is shocking, but what the Alabama political reporter news site uncovered is far worse. The sources say the state's decision to ignore the court is part of a larger strategy intended to force the high court to rehear the entire case and strike down Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act altogether. The sources who spoke on condition of anonymity described a plan concocted by D.C.-based attorneys and championed by Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall and other Alabama Republican officials. That plan is rooted in the belief that the Supreme Court never seriously considered the merits of Alabama's case, particularly in regards to upending Section 2, but instead limited its ruling to only the merits of the stay issued by the lower federal court. These sources say that Republicans believe that they would win their argument if the court were ever to review their new map. How can they be so sure? Well, these same sources tell APR that Republican lawmakers believe their D.C. connections have intelligence that Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who voted with the majority in Milligan, is open to rehearing the case on its merits. Now, we reached out to the Supreme Court for comment, but we didn't receive a response. That said, it is beyond disturbing that Republicans claim to have intelligence about the thinking of one justice on the Supreme Court. Equally disturbing is how committed the Alabama Republican Party is to their racist past, continuing to deny African-American voters who make up 27 percent of the state, but are only represented in 14 percent of congressional districts, their rightful fair representation. But nothing about this should shock you. We've already learned that Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been colluding with Alabama Republicans in order to ensure that he maintains his majority. And here is how he defended those accusations. I think people should be very very fair in this process, be able to see what's happening. Uh, I like to know what's going to happen out there. Ah, He said he said fair. I guess his definition of fair is ignoring the court so he can gerrymander control the House. Now, one thing is for certain, this map will not be enacted without a fight. And that is next. Last week, the main plaintiffs in the Alabama gerrymandering case once again objected to Republican redrawn congressional districts, saying state Republicans failed to follow federal court orders to create a district that is fair to black voters. The plaintiffs in the case, represented by the Legal Defense Fund and other groups, asked a three-judge panel to step in and draw new lines for the state. The new map enacted by the Republican-controlled Alabama legislature maintained just one majority black district and boosted the percentage of black voters in the majority white second congressional district from about 30 percent to almost 40 percent. Sources tell the Alabama political reporter that this new map was pushed by the state's attorney general, Steve Marshall, who worked closely with the state Senate to deliver this joke of a map and that Marshall was humiliated about losing the case in the Supreme Court and hopes to overturn Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to polish his conservative credentials for a future run for higher office. Because, of course, joining me now is Evan Milligan, executive director of Alabama Forward and plaintiff in Merrill v. Milligan, which challenged the Alabama maps as a violation of the Voting Rights Act. And Maya Wiley, president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. And I will leave it to you, um, Evan, if you want to comment on the fact that your attorney general is hoping to strike down a landmark piece of legislation, the Voting Rights Act, in order to gain higher office, because he believes that that is what Republican voters would like. Thank you, Joy. Um, yeah, I, I was pretty disappointed both by, you know, the, the reporting in the article that you're referencing, but also by what we experienced 
during the uh, public hearings and special session that led to the production of the map that our state passed. And it seems like um, our attorney general here is interested in enforcing the law in some instances and then defying it in other instances. Um, on the enforcement end, you know, Carly Russell, the young woman from Hoover who cried wolf, that's been a, a, a store, a media sensation. And then the attorney general has personally um, gotten involved in that case and is prosecuting her. The same week of our the public hearings of the public hearings that, that took place um, right before the special session started that where, where our map was selected, a gentleman named James Barber was actually executed by our state that same Thursday. So those are you know instances where we see our our legal authorities relying on uh, law enforcement and the rule of law and, and really adhering to that when it comes to um, using the criminal justice system. But when it comes to the situation that we're experiencing or even Patrick Braxton in Newburn, Alabama, who won his mayoral election and has yet to be seated, there's silence or there's defiance of, of federal court orders. So it really, it seems like it depends on the law, <laughs> if, you know, whether or not uh, certain folks will enforce the law and who that law benefits. And that's not inviting young people into the process. That's not inviting more Alabamians into our process at a time right now where our state is facing cha challenges in climate, poverty, uh, political extremism that we haven't encountered at the same time ever. And we need leadership. And so I've been disappointed, but the other plaintiffs and I are, are really digging down deep along with our legal representation at LDF and we'll continue to move forward. You know, Maya, anti-blackness is a train that's never late in America. And it does seem that right now the uh, people who are in leadership in Alabama are sort of trying to festoon themselves. Uh, you know, you just heard Evan Milligan describe in many ways the way they're trying to sort of wrap themselves in anti-blackness, including saying, yeah, I don't care what the Supreme Court says, massive resistance. Y'all are not getting uh, fair representation, not in this state. Yeah, I mean, all we're seeing uh, in play here is states' rights, uh, that you made the reference earlier, Joy, to Brown versus Board of Education, the way states stood up and said, we don't care what the Supreme Court said, we're not going to do it. And there was a time when the federal government then sent in troops <laughs> to protect people's civil rights, including in school desegregation. And I think what Evan is saying, and, you know, I've really been an impressed with the work of Alabama Forward and so many other leaders, black leaders and leaders of all races in Alabama saying, look, this is about whether or not we're going to allow the people of the state of Alabama and by the people that includes black people, black people whose population grew by 80,000 people between the two decennial censuses. The whole point of our system, of our democratic system, is supposed to say that, yes, after a civil war, we make sure we do not dilute the voting power of black people. And what they're really saying is we will pick and choose which Supreme Court cases we will follow. But what that also means is we will pick and choose which people and people based on the, their race will actually have a voice in saying who leads them. And that's just the old South, not the new South. And Evan, you know, what do you make of the part of the reporting that says that the strategy of your attorney general is to use this case and their defiance of the Supreme Court to eviscerate the entire Voting Rights Act? They seem to want to eliminate the whole thing or at least strike down Section 2. 
Well, I know that federal judges have a lot on their plate. They have, you know, they, their staffs, their clerks, they have, they have a very busy docket. Um, one of our senators here is, has been involved in opposing appointments of additional judges who can help relieve some of that docket. So I don't think they look forward to state governments openly defying very clear orders that they give and then bringing those those cases back along the conveyor belt. So I'll be I'll be surprised if their their strategy works, but whether or not it works, the message that it communicates is dangerous because we're we're at a time now where uh, you know there, there is a growing um, far right movement in our country and we've seen support come from certain segments of our leadership here, certain segments of our population. And when there's an anti-federal government sentiment within the messaging that comes from even our top um, law enforcement officers, then it says even if their if their plan fails and we actually win the case and we, you know, let's say we have a new district created where you have a majority black population, what's the messaging that has already tilled the soil for people's interpretation of that district? Well, now they're going to see it as illegitimate. Now they're going to see it as some sort of at the same talking points from the late 19th century. This is a federal occupation district. And then that same messaging will trend around the country with other cases that are waiting on the outcome of our case. And so we see that messaging spread in 2024 leading into these elections or beyond that 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 that, in, that introduces um, more dynamite into an already very, you know, very hot climate. We should have leadership that are doing the opposite. And you, one wonders why certain people are trying to hide history books and hide history. It's because they would like to be able to repeat it without anybody understanding what they're doing. Uh, Evan Milligan and Maya Wiley, thank you both. Coming up next, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito accidentally makes the case for ethics reform by essentially yelling, you're not the boss of me at the top of his lungs. Stay with us. Luxury trips, billionaire donors, dark money. Oh, my. Scrutiny continues over allegations of ethics violations facing justices of the Supreme Court. According to ProPublica, these breaches include an undisclosed fishing trip to Alaska for Justice Samuel Alito with Republican megadonor Paul Singer. Singer's hedge fund has repeatedly had business before the court. But Alito never accused himself. In the wake of disclosures about sketchy travel and outside activities by some of the justices, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted along party lines to approve a bill that would require the Supreme Court to adopt a binding ethical code. One of the members of the court has taken a public stand against the bill, Justice Alito. He told The Wall Street Journal, quote, Congress did not create the Supreme Court. The Constitution did. I know this is a controversial view, but I'm willing to say it. No provision in the Constitution gives them the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period. Alito's unprecedented interview as a sitting justice was published in the op-ed section of the right-wing Rupert Murdoch newspaper and conducted by attorney David Rifkin, who represents the plaintiffs in a major major tax case that the court will hear next term. Gee, I wonder how they're going to rule on that. Joining me now is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And Senator, just the fact that somebody who's got cases before the court did the interview, the fact that he, that Alito gave the interview and then pretended that Congress has no role in registering the court, I mean, in regulating the court. Well, so long separation of powers. Your thoughts? Well, Rivkin is not just a lawyer with a case before the Supreme Court. He's also the lawyer for Leonard Leo. Of course. Running the opposition 
for Leonard Leo to answering our questions from the Judiciary Committee. And if you'll remember, all of these justices come before us for their confirmation and their questions. And what did they say more than anything else? Gee, I'd like to answer that question, but it would be unethical to offer my opinion because that's a matter that might come before the court. Hmm. And here's Justice Alito offering his opinion on something that might come before the court with no hesitancy whatsoever, that that is actually unethical by the standards of his own colleagues when they appear in our committee. And that's before you even get to the merits of how wrong he is substantively. Let me let me ask you this question very quickly. Who provides the budget for the Supreme Court? Congress does. Who provides uh, the budget for their security? Congress does. Just checking, because he seems to think y'all have nothing to do with them. Um, we, in our previous segment, talked about the, the Milligan case uh, in Alabama, uh, wherein the Republican Party in that state defied the court because they would like to go back to the Supreme Court and have it reheard on the merits to get rid of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The reporting from the Alabama Reporter says that Republican operatives in Alabama have intel that they know how Justice Kavanaugh would rule on that. At this point, when you've had decisions like Hobby Lobby uh, and Dobbs leak, both of which were written by Samuel Alito, and people claiming they know essentially how justices would rule if they can just get there. At this point, is the Supreme Court legitimate in your view? I think it has a legitimacy crisis that is going on for a whole variety of reasons. All the dark money around it, why it's keeping so many secrets, the way it rules in perfect alignment with the right-wing billionaires and their phony amicus curiae front group, the extraordinarily bad ethical misbehavior of these uh, justices. It just piles up and it all points in the same direction, which is a court that is captured and in tow to a very small group of right-wing billionaires. What's the status of your legislation? Do you think it can pass the Senate? And I know you don't work on that side of the of the of the uh, of the Capitol. But is there any shot this could even pass the House, given who runs the House? The two shots are these one Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate that will pass it. And two, the continued revelations. This is going to get worse. There is more to find out about what these justices have been up to with their billionaires. And as more and more information comes out, as the situation gets worse and darker, I think at some point even Republicans have to say, all right, we can't go down with this ship. Let's clean this mess up. And have Republicans, I mean, because if we're at the point where Republicans are now defying the court and saying to hell with their rulings, we're not going to follow them. And that's what's happening in Alabama right now. But they're also doing it for a reason that says that we know there's at least one unethical member there. Where we know how he's going to rule. To me, this makes the case that Republicans actually ought to care because the, the, the yeah. Republicans are now saying we're only going to follow the Supreme Court rulings we agree with. Well, you're good to be following the Alabama case. Watch it as an integrity check, because it's going to be an interesting comparison with all the high-speed ways in which the Supreme Court, through the shadow docket and things like that, helped right-wing issues move forward. And if they stall on this one so that the Democrats lose a black majority district that they've already declared is justified in Alabama just by stalling, That's going to send a really rotten signal. This is an integrity check for the court.
And just to go back for one moment to Alito, it is unprecedented, I believe, for a, a, a Supreme Court justice to speak this openly to a news organization. Could that in itself be a, a lack of ethics that he did that? If you follow the terminology of his colleagues, when they come before us for confirmation, they say we can't talk about issues that might come before the court yeah. because it would be unethical. Hmm. That's what he just did. It's a lay down yeah. hand, as you call it in poker. He, he actually could just get a show on Fox at this point. That's that's kind of who he is. Uh, Senator, that's me, not you saying that. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, thank you, sir. That is tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.